This is the Brewer to Brewer podcast from All About Beer, a conversation that goes beyond the brew house and into topics that matter to brewing professionals and curious beer drinkers. Visit allaboutbeer.com and follow on social media to support journalism in the beer space. Check out patreon.com backslash allaboutbeer for more details. I'm Tommy Arthur of The Lost Abbey, back at you with this episode, bonus episode to be clear, conversation with my friend Steve Dressler, formerly the head brewer of Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. We'll get into that in just a minute, but first, this message. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. They've been working with brewers on a wide range of ingredients and delicious beers. First Tea combines the flexibility of order sizes with the experience you need to create innovative and successful tea beers. They get you the most direct from farm tea selection, so you are working with flavorful and consistent products. You can find more about First Tea's collaborations with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting blog.firsttea.com. That's blog.firsttea.com. Steve, it's unbelievable to see your face. Yes, I haven't been uh, between uh, COVID and uh, knee surgery that went bad. I haven't been out and about much. So, yeah, I cannot believe that we get to finally do this. So, this is going to be exciting. Yeah, yeah, hopefully I don't uh, I don't blow this. That's my my concern. <laughs> so I'm going to start with the I'm going to start with the easy question, and this is this is two pieces. Uh, first of all, who is Steve Dressler? And I only say it in that way because as I was doing some of the research, um, you know, there wasn't much about you prior to your retirement that had kind of been published. So you kind of lived in the background. It looks like I did. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about you know let's talk about your early days and just kind of how you became to be a 34-year employee of this amazing brewery. Um, I walked in the door on January the 9th of 1983, desperately in need of a job. And um, I had been doing some part-time work. Actually, I had a couple years of full employment at a fabrication company out at the airport. And I had my degrees in biology and chemistry. Sierra Nevada was looking for somebody to step in um, and do some part-time work on the on the case packing line. So uh, they realized that I had the capability of picking up four bottles of beer and putting it in a box. And uh, that was my claim to fame. Those are so, mad skills. Yeah, <laughs> mad skills that I think most of us I, possess. I had skills. And uh, you know, because of my science background, um, I started taking over uh, a lot of the duties in the lab and uh, fermentation and got my break into the brew house uh, in April. Uh, because we were uh, we were going to go to six days a week of brewing at that at that time we were doing one brew a day and it was either uh, five or seven barrel batches depending on the grist size um, and we were going to go to a, a Saturday and, and Ken wanted to know if I would uh, take the Saturday shift and I should I said certainly um, also at that point in time I think I got my pay raised from four dollars an hour under the table to something like five <laughs> with taxes, I think that kind of sounds like a, a flat deal at this point. But um, yeah, I got uh, got in there. Uh, you know, my personality, as far as being a little bit under the radar, you know, um, it, it very much matched uh, Sierra Nevada. You know, we weren't in the press much a lot back in the '80s and '90s, even in the 2000s. You know, uh, we never touted our sustainability work as much as we should have, in my opinion. Um, and some of the really uh, innovative things in brewing that we were doing, we just kind of 
went along and did our thing. And I, my personality pretty much uh, matched that. I think Ken was very much the same way, uh, not wanting to get into the limelight. And um, yeah, until I got uh, ready to retire in uh, 2017, you know, at the end of 16, then all of a sudden people were giving me calls and wanting to do interviews and um, find out what the hell had been going on all this time. And um, it's kind of it's fun. crazy. It's really crazy when I Googled it and I couldn't believe how little information there was prior to most of most of those articles and all those articles focused on the, the retiring Steve, not what Steve had accomplished. So. Yeah, you know, I was the first one to do a, a wet hot beer back uh, in the early 90s. Um, that pretty much flew totally under the radar uh, for the longest while. Um, you know, we created um, I got to create a, a, a beer style. Uh, the suggestion of a good friend, but by the same token, that was pretty radical brewing uh, when we did it. And, uh, you know, we did uh, we did a lot of things um, in a formulation sense and uh, R&D sense and uh, that never really, uh, never really came up. That's okay. That's okay. Yeah, you know what? What the hell? I just made beer for a living. Fuck. So in, in listening to the early day conversation, what do you suppose Ken's ideal head brewer kind of would have looked like when he wrote the business plan versus kind of the role you stepped into? It wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I don't know, Tommy. Uh, you know, I kind of, it, it's really interesting. You know, when, uh, when I started, um, there were four full-time employees and then the rest of the people worked, uh, part-time and uh, most of them worked at this organic uh, farming cooperative north of town in Los Molinos and grew great organic vegetables and marijuana. And, um, and so when, when we started to get a little bit more uh, used structured for lack of a better term, um, there was one gentleman, uh, Bob August, who had some mechanical skills that I did not have. And so he took over uh, the packaging operations, uh, filtration and packaging. Um, with my science background, I took over um, uh, the brew house uh, and fermentation. And I was also doing the lab for quite a while at that time. And then the other gentleman uh, that was there, uh, Steve Harrison, uh, a legend in his own right, who never got any credit for, for what he did for the craft industry, uh, was our sales and marketing and transportation person. And so we we divvied the pie up that way because it basically fit our skill set and personalities the best. And then and then we just went with it. You know, uh, I had no formal uh, fermentation uh, uh, training or, or brewing education. Uh, I did get some early on at UC Davis. They were great uh, help. Dr. Lewis was a great mentor of mine. Um, and I did some work at the Siebel Institute uh, to add to my um, education, but most of it uh, was self-taught and just hands-on. You know, we just uh, we just got at it and got dirty. You know, so, that sounds sounds like in that universe that you probably had more Ken time than the other people relative to Ken's passion for beer and making and yeah, at that time I things. did, and then uh, you know he was we started uh, in eighty. 88, 89, um, then he really got involved with um, putting in the 100 barrel brew house over on 20th Street. Prior to that, we were in a, a used transmission shop 
that uh, <laughs> that was incredibly funky. A lot of people don't even know that that facility existed. Uh, there's a few photos out there. Can you still um, smell the gear oil? Yeah, yes. Yeah, and we had to we had to pour our own slope floors and put in floor drains out there. Okay. Uh, so when he was doing the expansion to 20th Street, that took away most of his time, and uh, um, I was pretty much out there soloing. And then uh, when we I commissioned that brew house, the hundred barrel used Hoopman in '89. Uh, those were really exciting days, and he and I basically were running that brewery by ourselves. You know, I would be brewing and cellaring the whole day, 14, 15 hours a day. And he was across the street uh, assembling uh, a used packaging line that he had purchased and putting it together so that we could move it across across the road and reassemble it um, in, the, in the new brewery. Exciting times. It's crazy to think. Ass off, but yeah, uh, the best. In, in 10 years time, he went from being on a, on a five to seven to going right to a hundred barrel brew house at the time and no yeah, one. Yeah, we had, no one I think had we did some 15s and 17s in between, you know, we used to, um, I would, um, we increased our fermenter sizes and we actually got some decent sized unit tanks. But I think my step up was from a 15 barrel to a hundred barrel. So in that universe, what was the, the batch sort of, how many batches did you guys have to work on to really flavor match that? I gave myself four. Four. Did you need all four? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think I drank the first three. Uh, you so, know, well, we, I was trying to get, you know, the beers were so simple, you know, um, and the, the beers that we carried over from the original portfolio, unfortunately, we don't do the porter and the stout anymore because uh, people in this country, for whatever reason, don't like dark beer. Um, but you know, pale ale. I, I mean, it's about as simple a beer as you can get. It's uh, it's pale malt and about six percent C sixty, and that's it. You know, celebration. Yeah, yeah, and the and then the hops, and you know, so uh, we didn't have uh, a lot of instrumentation, and so uh, the first thing I attacked was to make draft beer, um, and so that was basically getting the color match, um, and. BU analytics and whatnot and alcohol. I, I used UC Davis for some of that. Uh, BU's was basically me drinking it, you know? I mean, <laughs> and, uh, you know, we would sit, Ken and I and uh, the other people, everybody uh, knew the product very well. And, and so we would do panels and, and, and buy the stuff off. You know, we would say, okay, this one's good to go. So. So I have a question in here that's down the list, but I, I'm going to ask you yeah. now. So Pale Ale obviously is a very iconic beer. I assume you still love it. Do you have any idea how many pints or gallons you might have you might have consumed in your days, given that you had to do all the work for True to Brand stuff over all those years? I don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you figure I was there. I was there for 34 and a half years, so not quite 35. And I probably consumed pale ale in some form or another every day of my career. Is you know, it safe to say that you're the, the apex pale ale drinker in the entire world? Do you think anyone's had more pale ale than you? I, I hope not for their, <laughs> for their health's sake. You know, for the longest time, um, I was the entire uh, sensory and quality release panel. And so I would go in the morning, I would get a call and it's like, well, we need to load batch so-and-so packaging so-and-so on the truck and you come out and release it. 
And so I'd get out of my office or whatever, brewing or whatever, they'd bring me the beer. And then I'd pour it off and look at it and um, taste it and then sign off on it. Incredibly stupid way to do things, but that's the way we did stuff at the time because did I make mistakes? Hell yeah, you know. Um, so uh, yeah, and then after a while when, I, when we put in the 200 barrel brew house, I would go out in the morning and collect all the samples that I knew were gonna be released for shipment the next day and at the end of my day I would just sit by myself in the office and sit my way through the six pack you know um so yeah every day and then we got into structured sensory and we had pale ale of course every day probably three four or five different packaging blends um and then for the longest while of course you had to have a pale ale at lunch <laughs> so yeah there's 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 been a few and yes I still do uh I still really do enjoy it you know and now that I'm not uh, obligated, not that that's a, such a terrible thing, but uh, once I retired and started traveling and doing stuff, I so enjoyed experiencing other people's work. Yeah. You know? And so I like buying other beers. And um, I actually went probably a week or two without a pale ale. And I had one with a burrito the other night. My God, that was a, that's a good beer. You know? <laughs> doesn't take much to fall back in love. No, it doesn't. And I'm sitting here in my office and while well, I'm looking at five bottles of bourbon, some vodka and a six pack of pale ale across the way there. So yeah, just, I'm just going to show you that I'm, I'm drinking mine. <laughs> as I, speak, so yes. I actually went out and purchased some pale ale last night because my fridge was empty. But, it's uh, still, you know, it's still, you know, I don't know for, it's, I, I think it's still the best, the most consistent, best made beer in, in the country. Well, it's about time for pale ale to come back around in terms of the uh, the pendulum swing. So, yeah, you know, uh, I remember you and I having a conversation years ago. I think we were judging together or something, and they had just come out uh, with a category uh, session IPA. And um, your comment was like, "Fuck that! Just have a Sierra Nevada pale ale," you know. <laughs> doesn't need to be sessionable no and then uh you know so yeah it's 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 such a damn good beer um you know and it was uh the other thing that made it so iconic and ahead of its time was the bottle conditioning you know um and nobody well you know there was uh new albion was trying to do that but uh jack mcauliffe uh, was ahead of his time uh you know he had the right idea but there was nothing to support him but you know, Ken's idea of doing bottle conditioning and having the yeast in the package uh, was twofold. Uh, one, it was, it's very traditional, you know, uh, old world uh, bottle conditioning beer for get your carbonation. And number two, he had a really uh, piece of shit filler. <laughs> and so, and so his, uh, his DOs he knew were through the roof, even though he couldn't analyze for them. But, um, you know, it was a good, uh, it was a good uh, oxygen mop up. And to this day, it's one of those topics that's not off the table, right? Not, not. No, I, you know, I was when I retired, I was doing um, some consulting and some quality auditing with some breweries, and uh, one of the things that I was really trying to do, and and it's unfortunate that a lot of breweries just aren't set up to do a back pitch of live yeast uh, post filtration, because in my uh, in my sensory and my vertical uh, research over the years. Um, five pounds of yeast solids, uh, you know, from the brink and 200 barrel bright beer tank, it'll give you an extra four to six weeks of shelf life. I mean, it really delays that, uh, that initial onset of that oxidation. And there was one brewery that I worked with 
that we were able to figure out how they could do that, uh, you know, could do a small back pitch into their uh, bright beer tank. And when I revisited with them after a while, they, uh, they felt that the aging mechanism was delayed by well over a month to six weeks through their sensory work. That's incredible. Yeah, you know, and I, I had a beer at the time, uh, a crystal wheat beer that was a very, very bright beer. And um, instead of doing a five pound pitch, um, I cut it down to two and a half to three because I didn't want the visual impact on the beer when you'd pour it. And uh, everybody bitched at me. It's like, how the hell can that do any amount of difference? And I said, well, if you know, I'll, I'll prove it to you. We, you know, we'll go through the science of it. And I did, I did blind triangles uh, for 120 days uh, uh, with a three with a three pound pitch and no pitch. And uh, at the end of the 120 day trial, uh, statistically, the beer with the pitch always uh, always aged better. Two and a half to three pounds of yeast. Yeah, we read this early on. Uh, the Japanese were doing some research with it. And uh, uh, when we came out with our draft beer, because when I started, it was bottled only. It was only bottle conditioned. Uh, product. And so then we wanted to do draft beer at about 85, 86. And so we, we bunged the tank and let the carbonation build naturally in the tank. And then we would rack it off. Um, <clears throat> beer, the beer aged terribly. I mean, it was absolutely horrible because, you know, our, our equipment was primitive and transfers were primitive. And so uh, we did some research and uh, Japanese breweries were doing these minimal back pitches uh, in their draft beer, so that didn't have a visual impact, um, but the shelf stability was incredible. So, you know, any in any time I'd have a chance to talk with brewers, you know, I'm I'm totally into making the best beer for everybody, and if we can figure out a way um, to manipulate the system and get them a better shelf life, I'm all for it. And you know, when I was working at the brewery, I was we made no. Um, uh, no bones about it. You know, we everybody, you know, every package of Sierra Nevada that comes out of there has some live yeast in it, you know, and most people don't know it. It's not on the label, but um, that's the reality of it. And that's one of the reasons the beer uh, stays so well on the shelf. Absolutely. Uh, you know, we built our brewery to do a lot of bottle condition work and we took our lumps mm -hmm. pretty early and then yeah. we got really good at it or much, much better at it. But the speciality of the tanks that we have here allow us to do things like that. So it's really exciting to hear from our perspective that there's still some work that we could do. It'd be very easy for us to back pitch and do things like that. Oh, it's such a, it's so minimal, you know, and if you have an agitation way to do it, which you probably do, you know, or uh, pump in a loop. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, and we never, you know, back when we started doing it, we never did cell counts. You know, we had, um, we had uh, milk buckets and <laughs> we had dairy milk buckets and we would fill them from the brink and weigh them. And it's like, okay, that's about 30 pounds and off we go, you know, and it, and it worked. So it's, it's, it wasn't such a critical thing. When we got into the 800 barrel tanks um, later on, you know, the cylindriconicals, uh, then we would always validate uh, cell count before going to the filler. But, you know, it's, uh, it's definitely, if you, if you can do it, it's, it's the best thing possible. Impressive. So Sierra Nevada has always been a really hot forward company. And I just kind of wanted to start with the old days. Like, what was it like to be a hot forward company? 
at a time when many, many small breweries weren't necessarily hop, as hop focused and, and the breeders and growers weren't really looking at that as being a, a real, real business. Yeah, it was interesting. I think, um, you know, when, uh, when Ken started the brewery and he was doing some studies at, uh, at Davis with my, with Dr. Lewis and Michael was very complimentary of what he was doing, but he basically looked at him and said, do you expect people to drink this shit? <laughs> you know, you the got Budweiser drinker that Michael is. Yes, you know, you got goobery stuff in the bottom of the bottle, you know, and uh it's hoppy and bitter and what is that aroma, you know? And uh it, it was pretty fun, you know. Uh when uh when I would I always had access to free beer, and so that was one of the main conversion points uh for me coming to parties was that everybody could get as much beer as they want and it didn't cost anything. You know, otherwise you were uh restricted to drinking domestic or uh if you were stepping out you would do get some nice light struck heineken or something um but uh it was a lot of fun you know it, it felt very much uh cutting edge uh, you know and when we were doing when we we're doing a beer like celebration ale you know which uh, i remember reading an article back then uh was referred to as a renaissance ipa um i always really liked that term um, it was very italian yeah yeah and uh and it was uh it, it was a lot of fun um seeing people's reactions to it um you know the thing with uh, the working with the hop industry back then was was really pretty unique because uh there weren't a lot of things to uh to choose you know the the hop industry was dominated by a germanic style you know noble hops grown in the u.s you know when I started brewing, the biggest acreage hop in the country was uh, Tetanang, uh, grown by uh, for Anheuser Busch, uh, and the the big user of Cascade in the very early uh, '80s uh, was Miller, mm. and because they were using it uh, in undetectable amounts uh, in their beers, but they really liked it, and that's what really spurred me to um, start hop contracting forward contracting in about 85 was because, you know, uh, here again, working at the time only with Hop Union, uh, when we went up for selection that year, um, Miller was going to walk away from Cascade. They were going to switch to something totally different. They liked to do that at the time, every three to four years, and help the grower rip out all the rhizomes and keep it interesting, everything. right? <laughs> yeah. keep, keep, keep the consumer's interest. interest. Yes. And so uh, Cascade was basically going to go away yeah. for all intents and purposes because nobody else was really using it. None of the major brewers were interested. Anchor was yeah. using it in Liberty a little bit? A little yeah. bit, but not much, you know, that when none of us had any volume. And so mm -hmm. uh, we started contracting just to make sure we would have the rhizomes in the ground. Um, and uh, that was just a, that was a, Great piece of advice, you know. So the other thing that was interesting, Tommy, back then was there was almost <clears throat> a wall of secrecy. I don't know how to put it between um, the brewer and the grower. You know, you didn't you didn't really get to meet the growers back then. Um, you know, you would go into uh, the hop dealer and uh, you would get your selection samples. You know, you'd get your brewers cuts. Uh, the grower's name uh, never appeared anywhere within the record keeping. It was just all uh, a, a, a number. The, gr yeah. the grower had a number 
And then there was a lot number involved. And, you know, as we, you know, as we got more involved, uh, we, we always would try and get out to a, a grower to see an operation. And uh, we went out to Roy Farms very, very early on and, uh, and would visit them and, and some other, uh, and Hop Union had a farm back then. We would go to visit them and a few others. Um, but it wasn't, that was one of the nicest things, you know, over the last, oh, at least good 10 years, 15 years of my career was the hop growers uh, realizing the importance that they had within the craft industry and stepping out, you know, and walking the floor at the CBC um, and being at the trade booths and chatting with people, um, you know, back in the 80s and the 90s, uh, they were invisible. Um, and I think they came to realize, rightfully so, the impact that they were having on uh, the industry, the brewing industry, as craft beer had such an impact uh, in the brewing industry. And then, you know, the privatized breeding programs. I mean, my God, the when I'm doing some reading now, the number of uh, hops uh, that I have never experienced uh, is, is truly incredible over the last five years. You know, I have, I have no idea what the hell's going on with some of that stuff, so. It's pretty damn wild. Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, I don't know, uh, you know, when I was first buying and contracting, I mean, I was picking up four or five varieties <laughs> you know i mean that was about it you know we were doing cascade and centennial and uh i, I, played, with, nugget yeah, and I played with columbus when it first came out uh started putting that in bigfoot uh early on and then we would always look for i, I bought cluster and i bought pearly you know mm -hmm. there weren't a lad you know and and nugget yeah that was you know that was kind of it yeah not a big yeah. bullion user back in the day What's that? Not a big bullion user. And used bullion uh, yeah. prior to my coming on. And then also, uh, I know he did it in his home brewing. Yeah. You know, and Galena yeah. was a good one. Galena's yeah. still around. Yeah, It's still around. Sense. Super Galena, yeah. So I, I wrote this in my notes to, to talk to you and we chatted briefly, but like, can you imagine what Cascade would would look like today if it wasn't Sierra Nevada for Sierra Nevada Pale Ale? I mean, would that hop have ever made it? And you say, you're saying, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. 50-50, um, you know, uh, when, you know, cause Anchor, you know, they were doing good work uh, obviously back then. Um, and, but they weren't hop forward. You know, the, the breweries that were coming up um, in the Pacific Northwest, uh, they were getting into their hops, you know, in the eighties, you know, Hales Ales and, Temper, yeah. Um, and yeah, and, and, and those guys, um, but they never gained, you know, they never gained the volume traction that, um, Sierra Nevada did. Sure. Um, yeah, it would have, would have been an, uh, an awful shame, you know, and as, you know, my career progressed and I would, uh, do my forward contracting and look at the acreage figures and stuff, you know. Cascade's really dropping out. It's not dropping out of sight, you know, but uh, it used to be the, the the biggest aroma player by far, you know, in, in acreage planted. And um, I, I haven't seen anything for a while, uh, but I'm sure it's got to be down. I'm, is it still in the top 10, do you know? Um, 
putting me on the spot. I'm guessing it's probably eight or nine if I had. Yeah, I would see, I was flyer. gonna say, Tommy, I bet it's in the, in, yeah, in, at the low end of that, you know, Centennial's kind of dropping, you know, down there uh, with some of these other hops. Um, and they they have great aroma, you know, uh, the fruity flavors and aromas, but uh, I don't know, sometimes, um, sometimes I find some of those aromas uh, a little, um, a little cloying. Yeah. You know, they get a, a little bit too much for me, particularly when uh, you you get the combo of those with the hazy factor. That's just a personal personal comment from me. You know, everybody has their opinions. <laughs> I know I've got mine. <laughs> we'll, we'll leave the opinions and assholes thing to yeah, the end. Yeah, yeah, we'll leave it there. Yeah. So is it is it possible that Sierra Nevada Pale Ale wouldn't exist if Cascades didn't come along? Or was there a backup hop? Or was there, there was no backup hop, you know. Um, you know, the other, boy, the other aroma hop that um, I was buying, the only other aroma hop that I bought uh, back then was uh, Willamette, <laughs> you know, and that was a, that was a big player. Uh, AB basically had gone from Tetnang to Willamette, which basically doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Um, and so there was really... There was just there was just really nothing there that was uh, that was impactful, you know. Uh, nothing would have come out of Europe. Um, the English hop industry back then was still good and viable, but they didn't really, you know, nothing was coming through that was going to give Ken what he wanted, you know, on a the twist of an American, a traditional American ale. For sure. So yeah, the. Uh, little bit of serendipity there that they cross paths around the same time. So we chat briefly about the sort of the, the, the prominence of Cascade. Who who grows the best Cascades? Who? Yeah. <laughs> I have my opinions. No, <laughs> now, there are some uh, there are some incredible Cascade growers out there, and the, but you know, beauty's in the eye. I remember at one point um, after the hop quality group had gotten together and uh, they wanted to put on this uh, uh, competition. And uh, so they wanted to, it was the Cascade Cup. <clears throat> they would Still get a bunch today, of, yeah. this, this was, yeah, this was back uh, not too many years before I retired. And uh, so they had a, we had a meeting at the brewery for some, uh, whatever reason, anyway, a bunch of the brewers were there. And then the idea was they would, uh, growers would send in cuts and then the brewers uh, would rub them and rate them, you know, one to three, and then there'd be a winner. And then the winner would get the cascade cup, you know, well, every brewer is looking for different aroma attributes and the hops that they want. And, um, and so, you know, we would go working around the room and, and I'm kind of, you know, I'm not part of the group, so I'm playing around and minding my own business, but I, I did rank through the hops. And then I, I looked at them and some of the some of the people in the room were uh, picking out hops as their choice one. I wouldn't even have taken them off the table. <laughs> <laughs> they were just they were disgusting. And uh, it was it was a real eye opener for me. And uh, yeah, I was at a growers once. Uh, which was really fun too, because then you get into the aspect of early, middle, and late harvest hops and how much the hops change. And we were buying Centennial direct from this grower, excellent grower. And um, 
And so we went into his uh, his room and he said, well, we finished our selection. He's like, well, I want you to take a look at something for me. We did my group. And so he had three different piles of a centennial there. And it was early, middle and late harvest centennial. Um, and so uh, he said, which one would you guys pick? You know, and so we went through the selection and it's like, well, we want that one. And it was great because he looked at us and he's like, well, John Mallet picked that one. <laughs> <laughs> and that man knows his centennials. So they're the largest, largest, uh, lar yeah. largest you know, users of centennial, right? Yep. So uh, that would, stuff like that is really fun. You know, that's one of the really fun things about hops and that. Uh, the more we got into it and then the more, you know, we got involved directly with the hop growers. Um, that's where it became really exciting because then we could work with them um, and kind of manipulate uh, what we wanted out of the hops that we were getting and when we wanted to get them picked. I know Matt Brindelson has a phenomenal relationship with a, a grower in Oregon, Gail Goshi. And um, she grows specifically for what his desire in Cascade or in the variety is. And I mean, they're absolutely gorgeous hops. Nobody else can get near them, <laughs> you know, but uh, good for him. You know, that's that thing from that one-on-one -on -one, uh, communication that that you get now that didn't uh, didn't exist probably the first 15, 20 years of my career. And it's, and it's really, it's an economic reality and then it's a relationship, right? If you can afford oh, yeah. to have that economic basis where you can be the driver and promise against yes. it. And you can Definitely. have that relationship. Yeah, you can have that. And yeah, it is there is a size component in there. And you have to be willing, if necessary, to pay a premium. Sure. You know, if I'm if I'm gonna ask you to manipulate uh, your crop uh, for me, then I have to compensate for what might happen on a negative side for that. And I had to do that a few times, uh, trying to get a hop that I wanted and uh, yields would be low. And then it's like, okay, you know, we're gonna walk on this contract, but we're gonna make good, you know. On, on on something else, you know? I would never walk on a contract. I, I tried to do an either or contract. You know, if something came in, if something came in shitty, um, I'd be like, well, let me take a look at this other variety and uh, and we'll pick it up instead. I never wanted to leave uh, uh, a hop grower holding the bag. It's typical, it's it's really, it is mother nature at, at her best. Yeah, I, I mean, they're, uh, they're stuck and, uh, you know, uh, shit happens, you know, it's the same with uh, the barley crop, you know, you know, things go bad in uh, in the brew house. And the first thing the brewer does is get on the phone and bitch out his malster, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, it's, it's tough. I have a lot of respect for the people on the agronomic side. Uh, and it's nice that they're becoming uh, more visible and more transparent. For sure. So at some point in a, in a bar one time, you told me that there was a, a hop that was numbered um, that you loved and it never saw the light of day. And uh, we all know the story of CFJ90 becoming Centennial, but can you talk about that hop that never saw the light of day and yeah, how we as brewers get back to that? The CFJ-45. <clears throat> and it never, uh, you know, why it disappeared disappeared so quickly, I, I really don't know. Um, you know, uh, I, I should have followed it up a little bit more back at the time because we were really enamored with the hop. Uh, I recall us thinking that the uh, flavor, or the aroma profile was more impactful than um, Centennial and uh, or the Dash 90. And we bought it the one year 
and played around with it. And there again, you know, our, our portfolio was so uh, minimal and, you know, beers like pale ale, they don't have a lot of fuck around room with them. You know, I mean, it's like, it's cascade and then, you know, that's it. You know, you, you can't play around the fringes with a beer that simple. And so, um, you know, we just kind of lost track of it. It didn't have a home, you know, um, in our portfolio. And uh, by the time we kind of pulled it together, it was gone. But um, it's, uh, it's really a shame. You know, there was no, uh, you know, there were so few brewers uh, back then um, that uh, it, 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 it was hard, you know, to find anybody that uh, had interest in it. I know that uh, Vinny at Russian River is one of the few brewers that I've talked to that w- was aware of it at the time. Um, and in my conversations with him, uh, he doesn't know what happened with it either. You know, I think we need to, you guys need to. <laughs> well, let's, let's, let's talk about this. So what, what made it, what made it sort of cool or better or more unique than, than Centennial? And given that Centennial has found such a life, um, you know, maybe we could get them to go back and, and find this thing and we could yeah, call it. Yeah, that's the, the thing. I mean, the germplasm, you know, has to be somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think they, I don't think they threw it out with uh, bathwater and, uh, you know, it's, uh, there's been so many changes. I mean, this would have come out of uh, the pre-hop union breeding program. And because the CFJ were the initials, it was Chuck and was it Fred? And one other guy it was their first name initials was the, the breeding thing. And uh, somewhere there's gotta be uh, a genetic background on that, you know? How it was crossed um, and how it was brought to be, right? Yeah, and I'm sure there are some uh, there are some growers out there. Uh, it's there's some of these privatized breeding programs uh, where they do such incredible work. Um, if they were given the challenge and the background information, um, they 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 would be up for it. You know, the the thing too, though, Tommy. I'm thinking now as I'm talking that you know that was back in the mid '80s. And so if you brought that hop back now, you know, uh, with what's on the table, with all these new uh, varieties that are just in your face, um, hop aromas, uh, maybe it couldn't stand its own anyway. You know, if you're looking at Centennial, which was such a, and in my opinion, is still such an impactful hop. It has such a beautiful rose aroma. you know, it, it's it's having a hard time holding its own out there, you know, within uh, the brewing community because it's kind of an old school, you know, eh, whatever. You know, also not easy to grow on some levels, right? No, it's not. It's pretty pretty temperamental. It's pretty temperamental, and you get down in Oregon with it, and uh, it's it's tough. But yeah, it's the Pinot Noir. I, don't know. I felt I fell in love with that geranial aroma early on, and I still find it to be. Uh, uh, one of the best aromas out there. I mean, you know, when uh, when Celebration Ale, uh, I need to go get some because it hit the shelves about two weeks ago, I yep. think, in town. And uh, it's, uh, it, it's, it's the most wonderfully floral, just straight up floral beer that I can find, you know. And of course, I'm blessed that I can get it, you know, 
yeah. in 14 days. Didn't right, right off, the, right off the filler, right? Yeah. One of my favorite things about Centennial is when it when it smells like strawberries, and I think that's just such mm. a crazy, awesome <clears throat> yeah. quality about it. And then you know you you really found that that home run. Yeah, scene. it's a it's it's beautiful hop, and uh, but I don't know some there they don't. Uh, you know, they're like uh, they're like pale ale, Tommy. You know, that's mm -hmm. the that's the beer that your granddad drank. You yeah, know, and yeah, yeah. and uh, I heard that so many times at the end of my career. You know, yeah, my dad had that. <laughs> well, that's the beer that I drank when I was in my teens. You know, and uh, <clears throat> yeah, so <laughs> you know, um, but uh, it, it, there's there's some staying power there. Awesome. All right, we're going to take a short break real quick for this message from our sponsors and then come right back for more of this conversation with my good friend, Steve Dressler. Everybody hit pause, hang tight. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. They've been working with brewers on a wide range of ingredients and delicious beers. First Tea combines the flexibility of order sizes with the experience you need to create innovative and successful tea beers. They get you the most direct from farm tea selection. So you are working with flavorful and consistent products. You can find more about First Tea's collaborations with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting blog.firsttea.com. That's blog.firsttea.com. All right, we're back. And uh, it's time to get back into this great conversation we're having. Steve, I'm curious. I've never worked for Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, but tell us what it's like to be a brewer at Sierra Nevada. Um, there were times when uh, you would be in work like a rented mule. Um, there was, uh, it was, you know, there was a lot of pride involved, obviously, because of, uh, you know, early on when, when we knew what we were doing, um, there was a great deal of pride involved. Uh, we were uh, we were a mystery to most of the people in the industry, but uh, the growth the growth of the brewery was so expansive uh, that you, it was uh, it was just work work work. Uh, 1996, I ran my hundred barrel brew house hot uh, 24 seven, uh, and I was shut down for probably less than 48 hours in the calendar year. Um, and, but you know, the interesting thing, Tommy was, uh, you know, I think probably around, uh, the nineties, you know, when we've got a little bit of size and, um, I started going to, you know, national master brewers conferences and, um, you know, here, you know, shit, young hippie that nobody knows. And, you know, master brewers was very corporate back then and, Everybody, uh, everybody had a jacket and tie. Couldn't find uh, anybody to smoke weed with. No, I couldn't. I couldn't. <laughs> I found a lot of people to drink gin with, though. <laughs> and I, you know, going in my uh, Salvation Army uh, sport coat. It actually did have a funeral announcement in the chest pocket when I bought it. Oh, that's amazing. Um, but you know, you would uh, the the level of respect that I was shown uh, by people as I would walk in the room and. Uh, you know, there was no reason um, there. There was no reason for me to get that. You know, it was simply that you know, Sierra Nevada. And one of the moments early on in my career, I, I will never forget it. I was walking through the Master Brewers and uh, looking for anybody that I might know. You know, there weren't very many people. And um, David Ryder called me over, 
gave me a little Miller, you know, right? yeah come on over and he was chatting with uh the executive brewers from heineken and uh you know they're all very buttoned down and he introduced me <clears throat> to these people and we all shook hands and he looked at he looked at me and he said, this man makes the very best pale ale in America. You know, and I was having a, oh, holy fuck moment, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I, 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 I've never forgotten that, you know? And uh, what did I do to deserve that? That kind of a notoriety. And it was because of what we were doing and trying to accomplish, you know? Um, you know, and I, as a, uh, as we were talking earlier, you know, flying under the radar, um, it was really interesting uh, going to a craft brewers or whatever. Um, and without uh, not too long of a time, I was the old guy, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, I had I had a lot of I had a lot of fun with that. And, uh, you know, uh, Got to do some speaking and whatnot, but it was uh, it was a very respectful position to be a brewer there. Um, you know, you walk into a room, uh, or if you go out, uh, as I, I really tried to encourage my staff to get out in uh, uh, with sales reps and get out and then get a sense of the industry outside of Chico. And um, you know, as soon as they found out that you were a brewer at Sierra Nevada, it was just like, oh my god. You know they they were treated with a, a, a somewhat different level of respect. It was it was very nice. One of my biggest wants and and lots in life is that I kind of have a feeling that personally for me is that I want to be able to go to Belgium and I want to be able to walk into a brewery and kind of be be held in in that standard of this guy makes great beer, yeah. Like we make, but never want someone to be like, no, you're just you're a bad imitation of what we do. You know. You yeah. Exactly. Do. No, I, I totally agree with that. Commitment. Yeah. So uh, I know when we went uh, to Belgium, uh, when we were working on the Ovila uh, brand family of uh, Belgian beers, which was probably one of my favorite projects of my career, uh, they had done, um, uh, they had the, the, the Trappist breweries that we visited, uh, they had done their homework. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we were treated with an incredible level of respect, you know, when uh, the head abbot of Chimay invites you back into his private quarters for an aged beer tasting. You know, that's pretty fucking cool. Did you, know? you get to Orval? I'm guessing on a hoppy beer level, they were happy to see Yo, you Oh, yeah, I went to Orval and yeah. watched them in their cellars doing dry hopping, which mm -hmm. uh, which really blew my mind. You know, uh, I would have never guessed that. And Quest of Letterman was great, you know. And you know, it was just a, it was just a, a really nice experience, um, you know. And our beer styles were so dissimilar, but uh, they appreciated the quality of our work. So mm -hmm. that was the whole thing. Which is that's I think at the end of the day, that's what any brewer wants. That's, right? that's what that's what a brewer wants. The essence yeah. of the beer you make, right? Yeah, that's it. All right. So you talked briefly about Sully. You talked about Bigfoot. Let's talk about some of the other seasonal beers that you besides. Uh, Fresh Hop and things like that. Something else that you were really proud of. I've got in my notes to ask questions about Otraves because it was a sour beer. You've got the Brux project where, where Tenomyces came into the brewery. Yeah. Um, you know, you guys went all these years being a clean brewery and now all of a sudden you <laughs> open the doors to some really wonky stuff. Um, yeah, the, uh, 
the fresh hop beer was probably uh, the one I was the most proud of, you know, because that was a logistical nightmare. You know, nobody had tried to uh, ship uh, wet hops before. Um, and so I had uh, had some challenges and some logistical issues there. Uh, the Gosa, um, I hated that beer. So <laughs> Both in flavor and in process? Yeah. I, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, I think you were there, Tommy, when I got my knighthood award in Yakima, and I made a joke for the, the hop growers that I finally lasted long enough to get a yeast infection in my bacterial culture. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, that joke killed, by the way. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it didn't translate well. Yeah, and, yeah. and uh, now I just, you know, I, I didn't like the beer, you know, um, and I, you know, it was. It was going to be a, a big up-and-coming brand, and uh, you know, it, 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 in my opinion, it had almost gone out of existence earlier in Germany for a reason. <laughs> um, you know, the uh, the the Brux was a fun project uh, with because uh, that was a, a, a Brian Grossman a Vinny project. They really wanted to do something together, and I found it a challenge. And here again, you know, at that point, I was really trying to expand my very narrow window of uh, acceptability of what beers uh, should taste like um, and so uh, and so I found I found that to be very very intriguing um, you know the trying to get the Britannomyces in the package you know uh, yeah it was without, it without just, contaminating the filler right yeah. yes uh, so yeah we actually bought a uh, they called it the inseminator it was uh, it would basically squirt a little uh, amount of bacteria in each bottle as it would slowly go through the micro the line so it we didn't include it into any of the soft goods within uh, the 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 beer stream uh which made for some incredible inconsistency in a flavor development <laughs> <laughs> It's a good idea on paper. Now, I remember going up to Sensory and we would have, uh, you know, it, it, the, the beer took so long to package and we would have four or five different packaging sets, you know, lined up. And so we we're going to taste them for flavor development and they would all taste different, you know, because they had different, uh, different dose rates. You didn't have any way to control it. And, um, but that was a lot of fun. Um, you know, I mentioned the Ovila project uh, when those came out. Um, still, some of my favorite beers that we did. Um, seasonals became uh, incredibly uh, frustrating uh, because uh, they had a shelf life of about two years. I know I did a, the the Ruthless Rye IPA um, first year that it hit the shelves. Uh, not only did it win a gold medal, I think at the GABF or World Beer Cup, uh, but it got artwork, uh, beard label artwork of the year in some competition. Uh, second year, you know, it went absolutely crazy. Third year, I'm geared up trying to contract enough uh, rye malt ahead of time in competition with the distillers out there. <laughs> and uh, I was sitting on a buttload of rye malt because the brand just absolutely fell off the table. You know, and uh, fickle consumer, you know, it's like, okay, that was, you've been there, you know, been there, done that, you know, what else you got for me? 
you know. Sure. And so now when uh, every once in a while Sierra Nevada will come back with it and put it in a variety pack, an IPA variety pack. And beautiful. Then everybody's like, God, that was the best beer you ever made. You know, yeah. why didn't you come back out with it? And I would always be like, Well, why the fuck didn't you buy more? You know, exactly. <laughs> so, that's the running, that's the running thing. Yeah. How do you how do you sort of attribute the success of celebration and Bigfoot to so much longevity? Is it just that their heritage heritage seasonals or what is it that makes yeah them? you know uh, a Bigfoot has such a cult following, you know. Um, do you believe in Do you believe in the Yeti? Oh, of course, of course. <laughs> so did the guy. He would send in pictures. He was having the entire uh, Bigfoot label tattooed onto his back. Oh. You know? <laughs> That is dedication. You know, there it's a, uh, the, the, the Bigfoot, you know, um, it's such a powerful beer and, and unique in its own right. The thing about Celebration Ale um, that I always found so complimentary is that my brewing friends, uh, that was the beer they waited for every year to come out. You know, that was the seasonal that it was like, okay, you know, it's on my radar, Celebration Ale's hitting the shelves in my town next month. And then they would go out and get it. And that's the best compliment I think you can get. For sure. Uh, I don't know how many, I'm out of touch now with the sales figures and whatnot, but um, I don't know how many of the younger demographic know what the hell they're looking at. You know, <laughs> it's, got a, it's got a wonderfully attractive package and they've rebranded it now. Uh, for fresh hop IPA because right. it is uh, first right year, after hop harvest. And so they've tried to do some rebranding on it, which I think is smart. Uh, I mean, the log uh, cabin with the snow was quaint, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> and then there was the label with the people on the sled that had no eyes. I liked that one too. That was an early <sighs> release. Yeah, that, so version, that version needs to come back. Yeah, it does. Because the eyes are the window to the soul, you know, and obviously there's something missing there. So the celebration drinkers are solo Siemens. They could be. Is that the analogy? That's the, <laughs> Some of us are. That's the takeaway. <laughs> so you have a, a seasonal beer that you hated more than Otrevez or uh, something something that you were just were really disappointed in having to make at any point? No. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think so. I'm trying. I'm trying to think. You know. Um, I just. I, I don't know what. I don't know what my problem was with that. You know. Uh, Part of it, I know, was it, it was really the, here again. I, I've always loved sensory, but the bacterial culture, the lacto culture for that beer, uh, there were two totally different camps. Either people doing sensory on that culture uh, got these beautiful floral rose petal aromas yeah. out of it, or they were like me vomit. and it was the bottom of the garbage drain, yeah, you know? Vomit and all kinds of Yeah, it was just disgusting. Yeah. And, um, I didn't think it was marketed very well. Uh, there was no budget behind it. We came out with a version uh, that, yeah, it kind of flopped. It just didn't have any repeat buyer. And then we they did a reformulation of it. And uh, and I said, well, how are you going to rebrand it? Because you know people, you know, if they didn't like it, they're not going to buy it. And of course, then that didn't work. Um, but it did win. You know, the year that it came out. Um, we entered it into, oh God, some, I don't know what the category was, drinkability or some bullshit category, you know, for lighter beers mm -hmm. and, uh, it, it won a gold medal and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
you know, and I, and I, I, I told, um, I, I told uh, the marketing director, you know, he and I had some interesting conversations over the years. The other beer, I guess, Tommy, that I would have to say kind of drove me up the wall is when they wanted to put um, orange flavoring in pale ale and call it oh, sidecar. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. I lost it. Uh, I lost it in a product development meeting and um, I was almost asked to excuse myself from the room. And, uh, but uh, yeah, you know, the, I had a great conversation afterwards with our uh, sales and marketing director because he came down to discuss it with me. And I, I just basically told him, you know, that here again, my opinion, you know, you're fucking with the most iconic beer ever made in the United States. And, uh, you know, from his point of view, he was trying to come out with something that would, if people liked the orange pale ale, they would go back and buy the original. You know, he's trying to get an attention getter. Yeah. Um, and I, it didn't, it didn't last. But yeah, I, can, I told I him, I said, I'm going to bust my ass making this beer for you, but I will never, ever drink one. I can and only I imagine. I, would, I wouldn't even drink it in sensory. Yeah. <laughs> but the thought, the thought from here is like, I can just see them in the annual business plan meetings and the pitches and they're going, okay, so this, this is orange pale ale. It's iconic adjacent. It's like pale ale, <laughs> but it's adjacent because it's got orange and it's new yeah. and therefore it's better. And I never, I agree with you. I never found the, the integration of the orange in that beer to be anywhere near what it wants to be. And it no, needed to be and, uh, completely different know, base to handle that. No, it didn't. It just, it, yeah. And there was, uh, you know, I didn't, I don't have a lot of moral positions on things, but that was one of them. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't abide by that. You know? Didn't find the contraception fast enough, huh? <laughs> no, no, exactly. Well, thankfully, it lived a short, it lived a short life. Yes, and went away. We went to beer hell and purgatory, whatever. Well, the work you did on it was fantastic, but it no, was fantastically, you. fantastically buried the beer. So. Uh, we chatted about hops forever, but do you actually have a favorite malt? A favorite malt? Yeah. Ooh, I really like uh, I really like uh, roast malts. Uh, you know, uh, pale pale malt really did some nice flavor development over the course of my career. Uh, a really nice uh, caramel malt, a crystal malt, because of my history with it. Um, is uh, that's got to be at the top in the top three, yeah. you know, because that uh, that paid the bills forever. Sure. Um, you know, uh, working with malt companies now and seeing the samples of stuff that they do, uh, it's mind boggling. You know, I love uh, I love a good chocolate malt. You know, uh, for playing around with some dark beers. Uh, when I started my career, you could get C sixty. Uh, black patent and a chocolate malt. I think Brees was doing a chocolate malt, and that was that was your palate. That was, <laughs> that, was that was your range. That was that was your that was your range, and um, hence the reason beers like Pale Ale were so simple. Yeah, um, you know, simple people with simple ingredients. Was Celebration a much redder beer back in the day? My my impression is, is that it yeah, seemed you know, redder. Uh, we were we were really always trying to bring out that red color. Uh, and at, when I was doing um, the, I think it was the Ruthless Rye. Uh, we did a lot of studies on how to bring out uh, that red color. And of course, now there are roast malts that specifically bring out uh, right. that redness in the beer, but. 
I was playing around uh, with different roast levels and then feathering in very small amounts of um, uh, chocolate malt uh, to augment with uh, the crystals and see if I couldn't get some of those red colors. Um, but now there's there's just some absolutely beautiful malts out there, and uh, you know it's an exciting it's an exciting time to be a, a brewer. You know, um, uh, all, all the toys to play with. Yeah, there's a, a you know the Irish red ale style beer mm -hmm. you know, uses you know, about a half a percent of roasted roasted barley, and that just contributes such a real depth yeah. of red without a lot of you know roast texture. No, but it's just that little bit of just that tiny little bit of color. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask you because I've never actually talked about what it was like being a boss, but you know what kind of a boss were you? <laughs> that's a good. That's a good question. Um, Should have read the notes. Yeah, should have read the notes. <laughs> um, there were times I was a genuine asshole. Uh, you know, uh, there there were times that uh, that I was expected by ownership by by myself everybody to get things done uh to a level uh to make things work you know running the brew house 24 7 running two brew houses 24 7 you know denying uh, employees uh you know running through holidays you know um and you know the I, my management style was definitely self-taught i never had any you know uh, you know, Tony Robbins guy. Yeah, no, there was no training session there. So yeah, there were the obviously the mistakes that go with that. And as I got older, <clears throat> and as my staff got older, um, I tried to uh, do better at that and do better by them. And uh, towards the end uh, of my career, uh, I developed a, a management style called "Get the fuck out of the way." <laughs> you know, uh, because uh, I knew I knew that I was coming to the end of my career and I didn't want to be the dominant person in the room all the time anymore. People needed to make their own decisions. Uh, and so don't call me, you know, uh, make a decision, you know, and that, that's what that's what Ken told me one time. Uh, middle of my career sometime in there where I made a, a, a really bad decision. <laughs> and uh, he, I went up to his office and. Uh, explained what had happened and uh, what my thought processes were. And then he would always ask me that same question. Well, how are we going to make sure this doesn't happen again? And I would uh, explain myself. And then uh, it was, it was great advice. He said, well, uh, next time, why don't you talk to me first? And then you don't have to share the blame just with yourself. <laughs> oh, look at that. That's yeah. impressive. Yeah. You know, and so, um, yeah, I I tried, you know, but I was in I was in a position where I had to make so many uh, critical decisions on the spur of the moment. You know, uh, there was there's no time. You know, this needs to be done. It needs to be done now. And uh, so that's what I would just say. You know, I, I get paid to make the call, take my batting average. I always tried to explain uh, my position uh, to people that didn't agree with it. You know, but the, at the end of the day, uh, I I had that. That was my call. Sure. So, you know, um, and so I, I lived with it. I mean, in your world, basically, there weren't many people above you, correct? In terms correct. Of 
So yeah, know. not until the, not until the last three or four years, you know, when the brewery started to go more uh, into a corporate mode, you know, board of directors and you know things of that nature, uh, which they needed to do. You know, you got two breweries, and uh, Ken, you know, wants to, you know, he needs to shuffle off stuff, and and so then um, there was another layer of management above me. You know, we had plant manager and then and, and all those different things and, and a, a different quality managing. And and so um, and yeah, I, I understood the necessity of it, but I didn't uh, I didn't like it. And I sure. was asked about it, you know, so that's OK. It's an evolution. I mean, that that really dovetails. One of the questions I had is, you know, you, you were there 34 years. How did you know it was time to go? You know, and it seems to that was one. Of, yeah, that was one of the indicators. You know, and I told that to Ken in my discussions, you know, and he didn't disagree. I said, you know, when uh, when I lost my seat at the table, you know, the real decision making table mm -hmm. uh, that had a huge impact on on me. And so um, I could I could start seeing the writing on the wall and I wanted yeah. to, you know, it's like I didn't want to I didn't want to work till I was 70. You know, no, I mean, it's crazy when I told you I was doing some of the background research, you know, we've been drinking together for a long time, but yeah. some of the real details, you know, here's a guy that, that basically, you know, had a, had a biology science degree, you know, starts chucking bottles yeah. and 34 years later, you're at the top of the decision tree. That's yeah. pretty unheard of in this country. Not many people are going to have this. No, pathway. That doesn't exist much anymore, you know, and it was the right place at the right time, you know, um, and, uh, you know, I had a, uh, I suppose I had the right skill set somehow, somewhere. <laughs> so is it is it patience? Is it bullheaded? Is it, you know, what's the what's the skill set for 34 years in one spot? I would say it's a combination of both of those, you know, uh, particularly when I'd been there long enough to uh, have enough self-confidence that I felt good about speaking my mind, you know, uh, and uh, I appreciated a lot of... Uh, the philosophical nuances of Sierra Nevada, you know, the sustainability of it uh, and the quality driven aspects of it, you know, uh, those those jive with my ethos really well. Yeah. Um, just and uh, I, early on, Tommy, you can imagine it was just a hell of a lot of fun. Oh, for sure. <laughs> I've read the book and I know there's stuff that's not in the book. Uh, you yeah. know, stuff had to make the cutting room floor, but uh, yeah, sometimes you got to let you got to let them lie. Right. That's fine, you know. Um, we had a we had a good time. It was the '80s. What do you want? <laughs> I, I think we've all been there. I, you know, I, I built this brewery in the in the late '90s, so yeah, you know, we know the jam. You know, no, no. Uh, I guess one last kind of sort of mode for me is is now that you stepped out of uh, being at Sierra Nevada and you're part of this consulting world. Um, and you and I have talked briefly about, you know, kind of, you know, how you've rubbed more hops than probably anybody on the planet. Um, you know, what are you seeing, you know, on a quality level and just in general, you know, where this business has gone? It's gone to a different place for sure. Oh, yeah. It's uh, uh, the, the quality level is incredible. You know, um, well, you know, uh, small brewers of any size now, you know, if I go to visit, well, uh, you know, you could, or you go to the uh, craft brewers conference and you walk the trade floor, you know, you can buy good quality equipment um, on any brewing and packaging level. Uh, and, you know, you, you have a nice bottling line. I mean, shit, we had a short filled soda filler, 
you know, and uh, and so you can get a nice bottling lining and good brewing equipment. Um, raw materials are somewhere readily available. Uh, the education of the brewers, you know, the ability to uh, educate yourself. Uh, you know, uh, Al Gore hadn't invented the internet when I started my career. And so, you know, you, you'd had to go, you had to go find a book for Christ's sake. And, uh, and so uh, the, the education of the brewers that I talked to, uh, it, it's, uh, it's amazing. The, the quality of the beers uh, is, is truly astounding. Uh, you know, when I was doing some work uh, pre-COVID, uh, you know, one of the things that I would like is for a, a sales rep to take me around to local breweries. Uh, and uh, meet the brewers and then just taste, you know, their beers. Uh, outstanding, you know, really, really good. But you still run in, um, you still run into people, you know, uh, drives me nuts. Uh, can I see your lab? Well, we haven't put one in yet. Um, and then you go on a little bit of a tour and they walked with their gumboots uh, through the unswept malt room with dust all over the floor and then back into the brewery, you know, and place is shitty dirty and you know you don't want to smell in the corners and <laughs> and uh you know they don't uh they just don't get it you know and I, I don't un i don't understand that and uh um their their beers uh pretty much reflect that you know if uh they're they're usually not really good you know um they're you know yeah you know other that they might be infected but uh you know, in the early days, uh, you know, you go up into the, to the Pacific Northwest and it was it was very hit or miss uh, to find a good, clean beer, you know, without uh, bacteria in it. And yeah. uh, now, God, it's a it's a it's a pleasure. I love uh, I love going out and about and tasting. So I've been marveling. I've been sitting at our bar the last couple of weeks. And for whatever reason, our filtration slash centrifuge program is kicking out some of the brightest beers that I've ever seen, but yeah. they're super foam positive and they just, they just radiate in the glass and they're glorious. And I'm like, yeah, that's great looking beer, you know, yeah. visually stunning. And it doesn't look like that, that opaque, you know, oat bomb down the street kind of thing. No. And it's, you know, I, I love that, you know, uh, when you look at your work at the end of the day and it's just like, God, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. Yeah. Especially when it leaves a ring every two ounces. Oh, is that? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's good that's, stuff. That's where it's at. Well, I think they want us to wrap up because we could do this for hours and hours on end and yeah. probably have to come back and get into like year two um, so that we, you know, can handle this. But uh, really want to thank you. I really, I thank you, really Tommy. enjoy the conversations. And uh, just a quick reminder before we go to visit allaboutbeer.com and follow on social media at allaboutbeer. And to support beer journalism in the space, check out patreon.com backslash allaboutbeer. I am the Tommy Arthur of The Lost Abbey. Really want to thank Steve Dressler, formerly of Sierra Nevada for 34 years, and John Hall for giving us the opportunity to create this Burr to Burr podcast. Cheers, everybody. See you out there. Cheers. Thank you. This episode was brought to you by First Tea. First Tea delivers the ingredients and experience brewers need for delicious beers and innovative flavors. Flexible order sizes and direct from farm teas for your next brew. Find out more about First Tea by visiting blog.firsttea.com. That's blog.firsttea.com.